0: To episode 28 of Radicals and Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. It's good to be back in the studio today. And before we get any further, just a quick reminder to you all out there that, as ever, anybody tuning into the show can get a nice 50% off on a number of books on the Pluto website that are relating to the themes of today's episode. All you have to do is go to PlutoBooks.com forward slash podcast reading and enter the code podcast at the checkout. It's been an interesting couple of months in politics what with the Democrats' Iowa caucus fiasco and the electoral breakthrough of Sinn Féin in the Irish general election just this past weekend. In the UK, of course, our recent general election has delivered us five more years of Tory rule. The fact that Big Ben did not, in the end, sound a triumphalist chime on Brexit Day hasn't quite been enough to dispel the feeling of despondency that's pervaded among the left since the morning of December 13th. But as the great Joe Hill once said, don't mourn, organise. And we're definitely going to take that message to heart in our discussion today. While Pluto is proudly independent of any political party, it's also fair to say that we were big fans of the Corbyn project. And many of us went out personally canvassing for Labour in 2017 and in 2019 as well. But following its worst defeat since 1935, the party clearly needs to reflect on what went wrong in order to rebuild. With the leadership contest underway at the moment, the big question is what happens next? Joining us today to discuss what went wrong in 2019 and what the Labour Party and our broader movement as well needs to do right in 2020 are James Meadway, former advisor to Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell and former chief economist at the New Economics Foundation, Sam Phillips, a Labour member who's been active in the party since 2016, and Martin Bowman, a Labour and Momentum member and Labour for Green New Deal volunteer who canvassed in London marginals in the 2019 general election, as well as spending two weeks with Labour legends in Broxtow in Nottingham. So thanks to you all very much for coming on the show. I expect we're going to talk quite a bit today about what actually went wrong okay, in 2019, but we might also start by talking about what went right as well. Because there were some positives, um, and the mobilization of a lot of grassroots activists, mostly via momentum, and the development of digital tools and infrastructure like My Campaign Map, they're an obvious example of something that went right. And there were some Labour gains in 2017 that were held in 2019, places like Canterbury, I think, where Labour even actually increased their majority slightly. And I wonder if the effective mobilization of the activists in the party played a role here. So it might be that things like My Campaign Map um, helped stave off sort of disasters in certain places. But were there any positives that any of you would like to reflect on from the campaign
1: that really stood out? I found the labor legends uh, schemes really, really amazing. Um, it seemed that getting people out of cities into the areas that needed the most was one of the things that I think a lot of people would agree maybe needed to happen more during the campaign. And I think labor legends was one of the parts of the strategy that did that very well, um being embedded in a place and dedicated to it for two weeks it was just an incredible sense of community and I felt extremely welcomed by that local party um, and really felt like more people doing that could have boosted things a lot in that area.
2: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Anyone else? I think yeah it's the same with that And i think it really was built on 2017 um i was in ealing in 2017 which was Ealing central Acton, which was a marginal of about 300 seats and on polling day i was knocking doors and people were showing up from all over the place that i joined and it wasn't my campaign map but uh, my nearest marginal that was it um and they'd come from oxford or whatever and say we need we're going to go on a campaign in the margin we're going to win this and you sat there going oh my god who are all these people i remember doing door knocking with three people instead of and we're going out with teams with mm-hmm. ten and then in 2019, the biggest impact was in the Putney when it was 4,000 people and two days before the election. And maybe that was slightly over-exaggeration. I was like, I'm sorry, you don't lose an election when you have 4,000 people coming to <laughs> to one marginal. But it was that kind of positivity there. Well, you don't
3: lose that marginal, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think that might be where the him. issue
2: is there. <laughs> um, and I will say that, there were many issues with how the manifesto was presented, but the policies in the manifesto it showed a really modern thinking of twenty first century of left wing politics in Britain. There are many issues that I'm sure we'll discuss with it going forward, but on an individual policy wise, I think some of the best things we've ever done in the Labour Party.
3: I, ooh, I, I don't entirely agree with that about the the manifesto in 2019, but but we can come back to what went wrong and where we need to go from here uh, later. The the mobilisation was incredible, really. The, this is obviously something we got right. The you know just in terms of getting people fired up to go and knock on doors, and and in, in really by by the time of polling day, like <laughs> disastrous uh, weather conditions across it seemed like the entire country. I think uh, for much of the day, uh, that that's a really impressive level of mobilisation. The sort of tragedy here is if you if you lose the capacity to do that um, because then we're into like well what else does the Labour Party have at that point in time so so it is something that, that's important to keep hold of and, and learning the lessons from that and sustaining that kind of at least that sense of how you hold a movement together and how you have a discussion that's constructive and how you get people feeling like they can do something out of this which ends up being positive next time round
0: hmm yeah Clearly, like you guys were all out there on the doorstep quite a bit. We'll yeah definitely come back to the point about the strengths or weaknesses of the manifesto itself. But were there any policies that were in the manifesto that um, particularly
1: resonated with people when you spoke to them about it? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Green Industrial Revolution, I think, was an incredible chance of policies and people usually responded really well to that across the political spectrum. But the problem was they often hadn't heard of it until you mentioned it on the doorstep. And I think that's a huge learning from the campaign is to really put that front and centre. I think if the Labour Party are looking for a new issue to kind of unite around the Green Industrial Revolution is fantastic. And and one of the other things that people responded very well to, which was kind of linked with that, was the regional manifestos. And I think what was great about that was that it was a very concrete list of policies that people would see in the next five years in their area. But again, it wasn't really in any of the campaign materials that we saw when we were canvassing. I think I shared it on social media and it did phenomenally well. well that would have been really nice to have seen. Um, more of that also just the NHS um, and properly investing in schools and, and hospitals did very well yeah
2: echoing the Green New Deal Green Industrial Revolution What? A mm. hey, can we decide what is actually called at this point because we're both using individual yeah. languages quite a lot and again what you say people hadn't heard of it that did really resonate on there and again as you said there were multiple like individual manifesto that was regional we had a race and faith one we had a youth one and a lot of these had really really good policies in them that just weren't communicated out well and this is what i just said about earlier i will happily sit and defend the free broadband one because that is a big thing for me but it was the reason why it wasn't communicated as a national service as something that can help everybody and connect it with the green new deal connect it with education connect it with the nhs and that was my biggest like issue of the manifesto is i was having to knock on doors and having to come up with the links and come up with the connections and it wasn't like hey here's a card that explains them so Mm. what is it down to me as a volunteer not down to the overall message
3: I think I'd pick up on that, um, particularly on the the free broadband. I mean, not, not just on, on the doorstep when it's, it's the one thing that you could tell that people had, had heard it, but um, it was it was the one that Lord Ashcroft did, you know, Mr. Polling in fact, he's got some polls out just uh, this morning um, did one throughout the entire campaign where he'd ask everybody, like, what issues had you heard about? And it's a bit of a corrective if you think that the election's like a thing that everyone's really into. Uh, that You know, pretty consistently, every single week of the campaign he did the poll, you'd find a good 40% or more of people would say they'd heard nothing, nothing at all all about the election uh, in that week. And then, you know, the, the most consistent single thing that was picked out would be like the 5% of people who said they'd heard lies, literally just lies was what they offered as a response that week. The one time I remember something definitely cut through for Labour was when people started saying that week, it was like, you know, 4% of people or whatever it was had heard about Labour's free broadband policy. Uh, it really did sort of get into the conversation and it was something people talked about and there was an argument about and it was something people grasped. But I, I, I completely agree with you that... First of all I think there's a there's a general issue with with how the manifesto was presented in that we needed to say more clearly up front where the money's going to come from, to put it a bit crudely. and he'd say straight away how this is going to pay for before you get into all the nice things you're going to do. And that was never quite done. It was attached to the broadband policy. There was a sort of tax tweak that was going to make big tech multinationals pay for it, but it was never really properly sort of spelled out and probably a bit late to mix in with the, the policy. That, that was one part of it. But the other bit was like, it, this isn't just a sort of, I mean, it's not bad to say, OK, you save £20 a month away, but it isn't just a sort of retail offer. This should have been built into a big thing about, actually, this is part of a Green New Deal or a Green Industrial Revolution. This does mean that more more people can work from home, for example. That's what it means. That means less commuting time. That means less uh, greenhouse gas emissions. That means you know, this is how you're starting to get towards that target uh, for net zero. It, it does mean that all these rural areas, all the small towns that we quite rightly have got a concern about now, suddenly you can set up new businesses there and bring some economic life back to these places. That's what this policy means. The person I saw do this really, really well, actually, was Sam Tarry, when he was challenged on Politics Live about the policy after the election. He's newly elected very good MP for Ilford North. you know, And he, and he put this defence of actually, it wasn't just about his free stuff. It's a big vision thing, and that I think is quite a lesson as well. That we're not just here to give people free stuff because it's nice. We're here to say, look, we could live in a different world, and this is what it could look like, and this is how you can be a part of it. So I do like the the free broadband offer. I think it, you could make that work well as a sort of centrepiece of what the economy is going to look like under a Labour government. We're definitely going to get more
0: into this uh, question of. The coherence of the narrative and how everything was framed in the communication strategy, because it's a huge plank of where things went a bit wrong. But just to circle back briefly to the actual canvassing itself, there were huge numbers of activists out in the street in the the London marginals, right? Um, I was out in Kensington on a weekday sort of lunchtime um, and there was easily 40 people showed up for that which is really impressive. But I think The Guardian published an article based on a leaked internal Labour Party report about the the on-the-ground campaign just earlier this week, which suggests that the operation was ineffective partly because there weren't enough campaign materials or they were kind of poorly prepared, and also just that people weren't in the right bits of the country. So London marginal seats had this kind of surfeit of campaigners. But the further away you get, it's kind of not really the case. It was kind of understaffed. As a sort of secondary point to that, I guess, is it problematic that when people did encounter activists on the street, they were bused in from London in these kind of regions around the country? Is there still a danger that that could have been perceived as another example of the metropolitan elite coming to people and telling them how to vote?
1: From Brock's, though, I never had that um, said to me explicitly on the doorstep, which is good. Uh, But, you know, it's difficult to know what's on people's minds. I I do feel like in 2017, almost we were too defensive uh, because there was an expectation of, of doing so badly. And I think this election, there was a sense of, well, last time we caught up so much and Was that because of canvassing? Maybe it was. And seeing all the huge numbers on the streets in 2019 compared made you think well, this same effect is going to happen, but even bigger. And I think the mistake was getting maybe too swept away in that and becoming the opposite problem of being too offensive in the seats that we were going for. You know, you probably saw 300 people an evening in in Westminster, which was quite a challenging seat to get, particularly with the Lib Dems, but less going to... What we thought were safer uh, is sort of more in the bag seats like like Barnet, which we ended up not winning, which I think was, you know, a tragedy. So yeah, I think that's definitely one lesson to learn, and I don't know where the polling could have come from to to tell us to be more defensive. But yeah, well, the, the I mean, yeah. the,
3: for, I'm on this. Uh, I was asked to come and sit in this sort of commission that Ed Miliband and, and Lucy Powell and a few other people have set up on basically uh, what went wrong. And, and I suspect, I mean, the, the final report of it is due out in a month, about six weeks or so. Um, but I suspect a large part of it is going to end up talking about these sort of the bits you don't really see, the kind of organisational structure uh, and the use of polling internally and that sort of thing like it was possible to see because we do have pretty sophisticated polling techniques now I always say sort of trust no polls you don't have to take a poll as like this is definitely what's going to happen but you got to take the information and use it and you could dig out uh, MRP polling for example that would give you a pretty clear indicator of like where the problem seats were and you could find that fairly early on and that should have been an indicator early on that we should be more defensive in our approach and some of these seats and start to think about how you shore some them up but also I think there's, there's a degree of, of we were blinded by the light of 2017 to, to some extent. And they looked like, net, you gained a lot of seats. In mean, fact, Labour did gain a lot of seats, net. Uh, we actually lost a few places, which Mansfield is the one that always sticks in my head. Uh, lost to the Tories. It's a seat in the, you know, the sort of Nottinghamshire, is that kind of direction. It's sort of former mining, all that sort of classic Labour heartland, uh, voted Labour since a year dot, swung to Tories this time. Now, the problems in these places are that for many years, the Labour vote has been uh, shrinking away. You know, you can go to pretty much any of these seats, and some of them wobble around a little bit more than they're given credit for, but mostly it's like uh, a continual decline in the Labour vote until finally the Tories win it. But there are a few like that in 2017. And that should have been clanging some alarm bells about what might be the problems in 2019 and I don't think it, it quite clanged enough for us to be able to sort of move rapidly to, to try and compensate for that but I think there's a wider issue about the use of data and polling in the labor party I think a lot of the times it's quite hard to put your finger on what what precisely is going wrong here but a lot of times I think we're not making effective use of some of the canvassing returns for example a lot of the time I think we're not quite gelling that with what the polling is telling you and then there are other sort of bigger data methods you can use you can go out and try and you know, pay Experian or whoever for for kind of access to their data banks. It, it, to me, it feels like it was never quite gelling properly in 2019. I think in 2017, we, we got it right, perhaps maybe it was more by accident design, but for whatever reason, it kind of came through OK. This time round, I don't think it was gelling properly. So I think there's a bit of a story there. Well,
0: you've touched on one thing there, which is this longer term decline or waning of enthusiasm for
3: voting Labour in
0: the sort of so-called traditional sort of heartlands. So we'll come back to that. But yeah, there was clearly a number of things that hurt Labour this time Uh, round, anti-Semitism being one, the drifting position on Brexit, the lack of a coherent narrative or prioritisation, I suppose, emerging from the manifesto and Corbyn himself. uh, Does anything stand out as being of primary importance
2: or was it this array of things? I think it was an array of things. I think blaming it on Brexit is naive and to Exonerate Corbyn and the faults that he brought as leader. Blaming Corbyn is exactly the same thing, and the inverse thing. And then, on top of that, as what we touched on earlier, the lack of coherent narrative there. It was really difficult to cut through as, as an everyday member you're sitting there knocking on doors. And sometimes you got a nice response, you got a good response. Other times you got toxicity that I've never seen on the doorstep before. I've only been knocking on doors since 2017, a bit before that for the um, referendum. But I never received such toxicity that I have in 2019. It was, I will never vote Jeremy Corbyn because he is an awful human being. Or I can't vote them because of Brexit, which was a weird one in London and Italy because it was leavers in London saying it. And there's not that many, I admit, but they are there. Just everything had been hyped up to 11, and I was um, campaigning Battersea, which obviously was a marginal. And you had people in there saying, I'm only going to vote Lib Dems because they're both as bad as each other. And you're like, but if you really hate the Tories because you hate Brexit, this is a marginal. The Lib Dem, because of F first past the post, there is a level of tactical voting in here, and they just were flat out refusing. And it's really difficult to ever cut through, as he was saying, it ever cut through as just an everyday member and being the ones that forces the narrative, if there isn't an overall narrative, an overall cohesion, an overall idea from the top of there I and mean, good material and good campaigning tactics in there, it's just, just really, really difficult.
1: Mm. I think um, a, a really interesting thing that I noticed in Broxto or, or and, and some of the other places we are campaigning is that when you were canvassing, you didn't know whether people had voted leave and remain. And that strikes yeah. me as such a huge thing that should have been captured in more detail because it was obviously such a huge factor in this election. And you were kind of starting from scratch every conversation you had in feeling out whether someone was a Lever or a Remainer. And there were completely different approaches that should have been taken to those different Mm. people. They have different concerns. I've met sort of three broad groups of people, I think, on the doorstep. One was the, for want of a better phrase, the Remainer Dads, who were usually the kind of um, middle-aged, uh, more centrist-leaning, very strong Remain identity, who just um, clearly had just years of reading The Guardian and being ground down into hatred of Labour's position, still hadn't forgiven for their referendum. You had... A surprising number of people, even I met a lot of Remainer voters... Who still wanted Brexit done and it was more of a out of a sort of nihilism of just like we want this thing over with and they perceived that slogan as I think I saw an article that was saying um, people wanted to vote politics away and that really resonated with my experience on the doorstep Boris wasn't really promising anything he was just promising to get it over with so people could go Mm. back to their lives. and I think that resonated with people who just hated everyone. Whereas in contrast, I think Labour's promises were a very sort of aspirational utopian um, and in a good way. But people didn't believe that because there wasn't the trust there to build on. And the second thing is, I think often there was a tendency to sort of demonstrate how good a policy was based on how much money was being put into it. And in a climate where Labour had a reputation for overspending, you know, the headline policies that were on the leaflets were, we're going to spend this much money on this. And then the conversation was instantly, well, how are you going to pay for it? Mm. (laughs) So had it been framed not with just price tags on everything, I think that would have helped a
3: lot. The issue of trust, I think you're hitting something uh, critical there, that that like you can't particularly isolate some of the big factors, you know, was it Brexit, was it Jeremy Corbyn, was it the manifesto? Well, it's, it's sort of, there's this perfect storm of all three by by the time of the election in some ways. And What you had in 2017 was, if you take Jeremy Corbyn, and probably people have had this experience as well, you could knock on doors and find people who are voting Conservative, but they'll say, well, you know what, I'm not going to vote Labour, but I respect Jeremy Corbyn, he stands up for what he believes in, or worse to that effect. In 2019, that completely gone. Right. <laughs> no one was going to tell you this. Not not anybody who was voting Conservative, maybe some of the Labour people, but otherwise it, it had really, really evacuated. The the trust wasn't there anymore. You could vote in 2017 for Jeremy Corbyn because he's someone who stood up for what he believed in and there was some attached to him personally. He was somebody who was going to actually try and make these things work. And once that had gone, then everything else starts to unwind as well. I also think there's a there's a specific bit around the manifesto, which is, you know, if you're dealing with a sort of basically low trust environment where people don't really trust politicians to, to do anything much, and there's a deep suspicion about that, it's now built up over many, many years. This is post 2008, post financial crisis, post, you know, the expenses scandal, this sort of thing. Um, but really, it's built up for a while, then you have to go out and try and win that trust. And probably the easiest way to do that, or the quickest way to do that is to say who it is that's going to pay for all your stuff. I mean, that I think was the thing we got basically right on the policy side in 2017, coming straight out and saying, top 5%, biggest corporations, they'll pay for it. And saying that straight away, and then the media all go mad because they go like, oh, Labour, they're talking about tax rises, they're completely done for. Ha ha ha. But what everybody hears is that these people will pay and you won't because we've just said 95% of people aren't going to face these particular tax increases. And we didn't get that right this time. It was just lots of spend, spend, spend straight away without the licence of either Jeremy's own personal appeal, which was there in 2017 and gone by 2019 or as being clear on the policy thing which was you know here we are this is going to pay for it I, I mean I do think the, the Brexit factor mattered most not because you pick another Brexit position and you magic up a majority for Labour or whatever I think it's a, a lose-lose by 2019 election the Brexit position mattered because you just had Jeremy Corbyn Mr Principled suddenly for two years basically triangulating going round and round and round and not being very visibly and obviously principled if you just said something and stuck to it I think you'd be in a better position it's still frankly not necessarily of one but you'd have been in a better position by this point
2: can I just ask on the top 5%, because I, I, if you remember the question time um, with that gentleman who was saying, I'm in the top 5%, and Richard Burton was like, do you earn 85k? And he was like, no, I don't. But he was still convinced he was in this top 5%. It was the same thing, similar to 2017. Do you know, out of your opinions, why that didn't cut through in the same way? for someone like that gentleman in question time who was clearly refused to trust that that was what was going to happen with the Labour Party I think
3: I mean he, he personally just seemed a bit like <laughs> I mean it's, it's strange you ask people about uh, you know where they think they are in the distribution of incomes what the average income is and this sort of thing and broadly speaking people kind of underestimate the degree of inequality there is in Britain they think it's because you kind of look around you see everyone's a bit like you right and pretty much everybody who lives here will look around and see people a bit like them that's kind of the nature of the, living in a society right all your friends tend to be fairly similar to you that sort of thing so so people tend to understate the degree of inequality that's out there. Um, 80,000 was a number to pick in 2017. I think it still applies now because it's at the point to which it's for most people. It's not just wealthy in the sense of like, yes, this is definitely quite well off. It's also so wealthy, I don't think I'll ever earn that much, right, which is another sort of second order reason to pick it. It's a bit different if you're in London, like, because basically people are better paid here. It costs more, but you're better paid as a rule. But broadly speaking, that's where it lands. And it's also the top 5%, so it's quite memorable. Um, I think the thing we got in 2017 was to actually make it quite tight in terms of what we were saying, right? So it was the poorest 95% of people would face no increases in uh, basic rate of income tax, no increase in standard rate VAT and no changes to national insurance contributions. And that was quite precisely what it was. By the time we got to 2019, I think it had become a bit looser. It was just like, oh yeah, there's no tax rises. And that's like, hang on, there's going to be, you know, you can pick out bits and pieces that are definitely going to involve potentially some tax rises. And there was lots and lots of, uh, running around, uh, Trying to do that, the one that leaps out is the one that we we got away with, frankly, in, in 2017, uh, and didn't in 2019, which is the getting rid of married uh, couples allowance. Which is basically, if you're a basic rate taxpayer and you and your partner are in basic rate or or not even basic rate, then you get it works out as about 120 pounds a year as relief on income tax. Um, which is, you know, it, it's like it's kind of why have you got a policy where basically if you're married uh, and you're not very well off, you here's 120 pounds. Why not just give everybody who's not well off 120 pounds? Right? It's just it doesn't entirely make sense. Why is this particular legal document going to give you this money? So there's, there's a sort of in-principle case against it. The trouble is, in practice, it's basically you saying, well, now you're a basic rate taxpayer and your tax." Is going to go up, and suddenly it's run coach and horses through your claim that you're not going to face any tax rises. It's a whole bunch of people are, and this did get picked up and by the press this time. So I think there was a there was a, it wasn't as tightly organised. And one of the things that was there in the 2017 manifesto and didn't get picked up on did get picked up on this time round, and, and we got we got done for it. That that kind of credibility of the claim uh, wasn't there in the same way.
1: Mm, that came up definitely on yeah, the doorstep. Absolutely. One thing that we've – Martin, I think
0: you mentioned it actually, which I had written down, um, how Get Brexit Done sort of resonated on an emotional level, I guess, with people, even people who were just sick and weren't necessarily going to vote Tory, but were just sick of politics. And it sort of resonated in a way that for the many, not the few, didn't, certainly by 2019. Does this tell us that policy detail is perhaps less important than the communication strategy with which those policies are delivered?
1: It was definitely a a simple message and you had people repeat it verbatim to you on the doorstep. I think that there was this successful communication that nothing else could happen until Brexit was done. And I, I had that quite a few times with Leave voters who had voted Labour previously and were saying, you know, I'll come back to Labour afterwards, but I want Brexit done. And you'd say about climate change, you'd say about things that they cared about, but they'd say, we'll get to that after Brexit. And I think the, the media played into that on both sides, to be honest, um, of the remain-leave divide, because it was all that was talked about in the press. So I think you could easily get the sense that it was the only issue, that and that it wouldn't go away from the the pages of the newspapers until it was over and done with. And the people were almost just sick of reading about it every day. They wanted to read about something else. Um, and I think that comes back to one of the things that we're going to tackle later, which is the media. I think on both sides you, uh, you had nobody really advocating for... Labour in the mainstream press, as I think, the Guardian uh, and the sides that would have traditionally been more Labour were just hammering Labour relentlessly from a Remain stance. The rest of the press was hammering them from a Leave stance. And nobody was giving anywhere near the amount of airwaves to the other issues. And I think that just contributed to the fact that this was a Brexit election. I think that wasn't a natural thing. It, it was something that was actively cultivated by the press to a certain extent. I
2: fully agree with everything that was just said. I think there's a lot of times in the media where they were trying to find someone, quote unquote, to fix everything and I think that was part of the issue whereas it was Boris Johnson will fix Brexit by getting it done or the the, the fake one is why can't Jeremy Corbyn just press the magic button to stop Brexit? That doesn't exist. Those, those types of things don't exist and yet on every part of the media it was what was expecting and I'll get onto this if we go into the future about what happens next because I think we, it's going to come up again is people are expecting a leader they're expecting someone to sit there and fix everything and it's just not going to happen. And whether it's the 24 hour news cycle, whether it's social media, I think you can debate for hours on it. But at some point, there needs to be a genuine discussion that you can't just present something with a magic button and a magic fix is just going to fix everything until the Conservatives come out with the slogan, which is we're going to fix everything and get Brexit done. And then, as we all know, that's not true. We know that there's going to be another six years of trade deals, seven years of trade deals. And that was maybe mentioned twice in the debate. And that's really, I never understood why we didn't hammer that point home where the get Brexit done slogan is just a lie. There's so much more to it than what the Conservatives are offering.
3: I see the point about communications. I think there's there's a bit of a tendency post-election to go, well, and this is always a bit there on the left. There's a sort of variance of it even before uh, Jeremy was elected leader in, in 2015, which is roughly, you know, all our policy is really good. We just have to talk about it a bit better. And The, the problem there is that you're, you're detaching policy from the communications of and policy. And, and actually if you want to get it right, you have to sort of do the two together. Get Brexit done is a very, very clear communication of a specific policy, which is that we will leave the EU on the 31st of January, as in fact is now happen. But Boris Johnson's just got a big win out of this because he's done this. Now, we all know that in practice this is now going to be mad disputes and rows and God knows what else with the EU, with the US, with everybody else you're trying to sign a trade deal with for goodness knows how well. We know that until 31st of December this year, right? That's, that's at the minute the the timing for, for at least one of those trade deals. But it is changed in how people are going to approach this and there's a need to get into some of the policy detail that if you just have Brexit as a sort of existential question, it isn't there in quite, quite the same way. I mean, Donald Trump does this. I mean, you know, if you say I'm gonna build a wall and Mexico's going to pay for it, that is quite a clear communication of absolutely awful policy that you got you can't really implement, it isn't gonna happen, but it is a policy and you've said who's gonna pay for it and there you go, there's your communication of the thing. And it's like and it's a similar sort of mechanism. Uh, And we 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 need to find things that work like that. So it's not just here's a policy and let's try and be a bit more slick in the communications. It's like how do you get the policy and communications to, to work together? We were talking about the broadband thing earlier, like probably the communications that should have been more like this is going to be about getting our smaller towns, our rural areas back into the national community. We want development in these places. Look at the example of Cornwall where they've had, you know, subsidised broadband, very fast broadband, fastest growing tech sector outside of London. You know, you can give examples and that's what your communication starts to look like when it attaches to a policy. And I know we're going to talk a bit, you know, when we move on to it, we'll talk about the future and I think there's a bit of a danger here where we start to think, oh, if only we could do a bit better communications. Because it's also it's underplaying some of the decent comms we did in fact do over the last few years. I don't want to, like, you know, got lots of things wrong but actually quite often we did get some of the comms stuff really really right and and we shouldn't forget that. Hmm.
0: Was there anything that you would have liked to have seen prioritised more
2: in the the campaign or in the, in the manifesto? National Education Service I think would be something that didn't really cut through as much as it maybe should have done because it was a really good idea and a good set of policy but it was kind of a bit esoteric and out there as just oh we're going to make a National Education Service. There was... Lisa in the Andrew Neil interview, mentioned uh, bringing back EMA as one of her priorities, which is one of the best like policies we had. I had no idea it was in the manifesto. It's one line in the education page. And I'm sitting there like, hang on a minute, we've had this entire education idea and this great little policy that was cut by the Tories. An easy, easy, easy thing to get through. Young people to convince them. I know we're not very good on Brexit at the moment, but we've got this great policy that really helped people like myself, why isn't that being communicated a bit? But that's, I think, what I'd have preferred is education being a bit more up on the priorities over the NHS, and not over the NHS, obviously, but, like, on the same level as the NHS would be my argument there.
3: I mean, there's, there's a specific thing, and that, I suppose, which in 2017 you you had. The, from memory, the, the sort of, depending on how you divide the, the country you voted up, the, the if you divide it by age, the biggest single sort of straight Conservative to Labour switches are in the sort of 30s to mid-40s kind of band, right, which... I'm pretty confident that's connected to uh, schools and education and childcare policy, right? That's exactly the set of people who have young children who care about the state of schools. And by that point, schools funding have been cut per pupil for really quite a long period of time. And the NUT or, or NEU, as it now is and probably was back then, ran a, a really good campaign about how much is your school being cut by? You could type in your postcode and it will tell you, right? Uh, and that really, I think, cut through. And we had a very clear promise to increase schools funding. One of the first things Boris Johnson did once he was... Prime Minister was to say we're going to increase schools funding uh, to try and kill that one off. So I think to, to make the National Education Service work, we, one, could have talked more about it, but also presented it as like this is going to be quite a transformative vision of what education is and, and fought for that. And perhaps had just fought for that and not a whole load of other things. I'm, I'm not sure the manifesto should have been smaller in the sense of length, but it was that point of picking out what are the priorities. Uh, I, I do think we should have led very early on with the tax increases. Uh, I don't think we should have said let's change the, the fiscal rules that we're using so we can massively increase the amount of money we're spending on, you know, infrastructure and that sort of thing. I think there were policies in there that we didn't make enough of. My my personal inclination is that more on the sort of giving people a sense of ownership giving workers shares in companies giving people something they can have that's there it's like decentralizing that sort of stuff we could have done a lot lot more with that because that, I think undercuts a lot of like the Tory sort of rhetoric around what we want to do uh, and that I think is is probably our best line to, to take out of out of all of this is much more of that you know alternative models of ownership if people remember uh, the document from 2017 like building up this sort of sense of what's labor it's not labor's going to turn up and just give you nice things it's going to empower you so that you can do something where you Live, you're going to have something. It's going to be yours. That I, I think would have been a, a good thing to draw at the manifesto this time round. Mm.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: It was. A, I think it was very clever of, of Boris to inverted commas end austerity because I think that that was a very clear dividing line that you could sell on the doorstep when you in the 2017 that was kind of rendered a little bit more complicated and difficult to communicate in a two-minute conversation. We were outside a lot of schools. Uh, John McDonnell came along one time in uh, Brockstow with the school cuts uh, leaflets that you're talking about, and that was really popular. I do wonder, I I often got bogged down into uh, conversations, for instance, with the NHS leaflets, which were mainly... Uh, future claims about Boris's intentions with selling off the NHS to Trump. And I think in in a political climate where there is such cynicism of politicians and nobody knows who to trust, having hypothetical claims about someone's future intentions was perhaps a bad move because it just got into a a debate of who do you trust about the future. And I think those school cuts, actually, campaigns from 2017 were great because what you were saying is you weren't talking about hypothetical things or trust. You were talking about stone cold facts of what were the levels of historical funding. And I think a really strong framing of this that I found on the doorstep was that you've had 10 years of evidence of what the Tories will do you could lay that out maybe you don't trust anybody, that's understandable in the circumstances but why not give Labour a go and see what Labour will do and you know, follow that up with very clear comparisons of, of kind of funding between the two, I think that would have, yeah, put us on more solid grounds perhaps.
3: I mean that you, you could imagine a sort of different campaign that's, that's much more defensive in that sense right, so you're saying look at their dreadful record for 10 years, here are the fairly limited things we're going to do to correct that, there may be other stuff you want to do as well but these are the things- we're going to lead on. And you could have perhaps structured an entire campaign around the NHS. Now, what happened in this is that we ended up talking about the NHS probably for the last two weeks or so, maybe a bit longer than that. I mean, the stuff, the, the secret trade deals uh, was, was really, really good. You know, that was a good thing to bring out. It was a good theatrical moment. It sort of captured the attention. Of course, you then had this dreadful business of, of almost anything Labour said was sort of subject to this instant excessive disbelief. Well, of course, it's not really saying that. Well, it is in black and white literally saying that, for example, <laughs> US health companies and pharmaceutical companies want full and unfettered access to NHS data, thank you very much Like they are going to give this stuff away, in fact they are already giving this away if you see some of the, the deals that have been signed with uh, some of the, the big tech companies, um, so you could run a, a sort of defensive campaign about we are here to save the NHS, this is what we're going to do, that's kind of Labour's place of safety I feel this is like, your, you know, your, when your push comes to shove you're going to talk about the NHS because it's one thing everybody trusts Labour on more than the Tories come what may, uh, so you talk about that and you could do something around that and you could structure a campaign around that, it, it would be different to the the campaign we try to run, which was quite an expansive, you know, here's a whole load of things about the Green New Deal and everything's going to look different. Uh, but without that trust, it's hard to get people to, to sign up to any of these things.
2: Hindsight, not really hindsight, because that only happened last week, Um, and I'm not an expert on Irish politics, I'll say that clearly here. (laughs) But you look at the rise of the left in Ireland and the um, Spanish elections and how the Green Party in Germany are doing well, and a lot of their big thing is housing and rental things. I think the one policy I remember about renting is that that Labour will let you have pets if you're a renter. Which is actually, isn't a bad policy, but if that's the only thing you've got, when so many people in this country are in renting now and cannot see a way, personally, my generation, who cannot see a way, yes, we're usually all voting Labour anyway, but again, the 30 to 40 year olds who have kids that are sitting there renting in London, sitting there renting in other cities, they surely want to care that they know that their kids are going to be able to have a house one day. And I think, I don't think housing was really. And rental property and tenancy and all that sort of stuff wasn't really discussed all that much in 2019.
1: Just to bring that really quickly back to the issues of trust, I feel like if we think about the sort of 30 to 50 demographic of of sort of slight middle-aged voters who maybe Labour lost more this election, I think the, the narrative of populism really cut through. And, you know, The Guardian pushed a huge series of editorials about um, populism, I think they sort of did everything except name Corbyn, <laughs> really. But he was almost like a ghost behind all these articles as the target, I felt. Basically, the sort of horseshoe theory of saying that the, the right of Trump and so on are the same as Corbyn and Sanders. And I think when it got to the point where Boris was promising lots of spending too, it suddenly changed the meaning of Labour spending policies to being a populist just say or do whatever people want to get into power without realism. And I think to that demographic of people, it perhaps played that way of these people are both unrealistic. I'm going to go for Lib Dem or somebody more fiscally conservative. And part of the way of countering that, hopefully in the future, is maybe going back to basics and explaining why things like Keynesian economics work. Because I think we're still making up, I think, for the mistakes of Labour in, say, 2010 who didn't articulate a clear alternative to austerity and people still think well if you go on a spending spree you're going to have to pay for it in austerity later on. So we're running a little bit out of time so I want to bring us up to the present
0: because obviously at the moment we're in the middle of this uh, leadership contest Um, as we're recording Keir Starmer, Rebecca Long-Bailey, Lisa Nandy and Emily Thornberry. Yeah they're all still in the race aren't they? So We've been talking a lot about credibility. We've been talking a lot about trustworthiness. Do any of the candidates seem particularly credible? Who should be,
3: it's the million dollar question, who should be the next leader? The honest answer to this uh, at this point in time is it, it, we end up with a discussion about, oh, who's going to be the leader that's going to win the next election, this sort of thing. The truth is that the, the issues we have right now are significantly worse than like just put someone else in charge and it's all going to be OK, right? Yep. The, uh, and, which is a bit of a grim thing to say. But the, the truth is that we, we now have, I think, a, a conservative government which is not going to behave uh, like the sort of slightly comic book villain we're just going to carry on doing austerity because like we've got the argument on austerity down to a T by this point, right? We've got that. And we know we've sort of won that argument because we have a government that is saying it's not going to do austerity and appears to be lining up at least some spending that isn't really austerity. Right, they are talking. Now they may end up not uh, supplying this funding, and if they don't, then we'll we'll take them to the cleaners over it. I mean, that's a that's a political gift for us in that sense. But they're not doing the kind of traditional Tory Thatcherite thing. I think they are going to be interventionist in the in the fairly sort of limited sense, but enough to sort of break with, with routine. And this is a challenge for, for what the left is doing, and it's a bit more of a challenge than like. Put someone credible up and revert to. I mean, there's, there's a bit of the party that says revert to some point in the mid 1990s and it'll all be good again. I mean, it's just like you know, it's 20 years ago. The world has moved on, and it's well moved on in ways which are both bad for the 1990s Labour offer, and not great for a 2019 Labour offer, as it turns out. And we have to take account of that. So, so at this point in time, I think we need a we need a bigger conversation than just like change whoever's in charge, right? And we need a, a proper understanding of what happened over 2017 and what happened in 2019 and 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 how British society has changed and and how if you're a socialist right now in Britain in 2020 what you need to say to people so that you can plausibly uh, create a government uh, in a few years time
2: Yeah I fully agree on that Uh, there isn't one leadership person that's going to fix everything as I was saying there's not the magic fix Labour button again and we're going to have at minimum five years of Tory rule, Tory austerity in various ways and not necessarily the same way and the thing that the left I think need to really realise quickly is there are ways of beating that that isn't parliamentary, we can't spend the next five years necessarily sitting around waiting for the next election and knocking on doors and getting as much data as possible. We need to go, right, where are the food banks we can help? Where are the tenancy unions? Where are the uh, local community organisations, organisations, even the basics: allotments, gyms, sporting events, school cuts, fighting against, still fighting against the school cuts and stuff like that. Instead of sitting it going, oh, we've got another five years to work out our leader and our election, we've got to sit there and go, right, what can the left do? We've got all these activists... All of these people are still going to care and still going to want to be involved. Find out your local thing, find out and go and campaign to have your allotment rebuilt, go and campaign to make sure that the community centre is good for kids to come to after school and stuff like that, and really, really build up the community sense of it. Yeah. That's what they're going to need and that's what we're going to need. Mm.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think it, it's really interesting seeing like community-based unions like ACORN experiencing a bit of a resurgence. I think that's, that's fantastic going back into communities, but and building up that trust directly as a way of getting around the media. I do feel like one of the things that Labour have done incredibly well under Corbyn is reach younger voters. And we see that that the support for Labour in younger sections of society is higher than it's ever been, I think, um, or very high. So we've done very well at kind of bypassing the media, the negativity in the media for that group. I think maybe the biggest challenge is winning back those middle-aged voters who've maybe drifted from Labour. And and I think we need to create a, a media that is both socialist in outlook and has the great policies that we saw in 2019, but maybe with the way that that message is delivered targeted to that audience and that might be the messenger is different you know for instance I think Navarra and Tribune are fantastic but when I look at Navarra it appeals to me I feel but it may be I can imagine it wouldn't appeal to people in red wall seats who are in their 40s so like can we create a, a kind of Navara that's tailored to middle-aged people in red wall seats like a similar message but portrayed in a different
3: Way that appeals to that group, you know, I think that would be a huge step. I mean, you can argue that there are already bits of the media that are like that, Mm. but they don't come from our. Like political tradition, right? So, so there is, you know, you can listen to talk radio or something. It's kind of, it's got that kind of audience. But but I think it's absolutely right. And that's a much better answer than what I gave, which is that like, there's no point sitting around for five years. Like we've got to go 580,000 members of the Labour Party. Goodness knows how many people are active in lots and lots of different ways. Can we get out into every single community that we can get into? Can we set up different media outlets? Can we actually build something on the ground for this now, basically nearly five year period that we're, we're almost certainly going to be stuck with? And that will put us into position Uh, to win the election. But more than that, that, this is also the way in which you stop a conservative government, which all right, they're going to end austerity. Alright, it's going to be some bits of austerity at the end, some bits uh, they aren't going to end. They've just deported a a bunch of people despite a a court of appeal order saying, you can't do this, it's actually kind of illegal. These are the sort of battles that are going to have to be fought and that is going to be a much easier fight if we're there you know, in local communities building stuff and recognise, identifiers as people who are able to do this. So so of course we should be doing this. And that that is a separate question to whoever leads the Labour Party at this point in time. No, just thank you for saying about um, the d-
2: deportation and I think what we need to forget is again not necessarily go on the offensive again and sit on the defence of the communities that did vote for us which are the young people, is the BAME community they were the ones that kept us not alive in cities necessarily but kept us really good in some cities especially in London and especially especially um, Birmingham and um, Manchester and stuff like that and to make sure that the Labour Party as a group is saying no we do not accept your deportations, we are there for these communities, we are there for these people and so it's, it is a bit of that balancing act and not so not to mention all. Ashkoff, Mr. Polling, and what was saying some of the focus groups Then and I'm not a big fan of focus groups, but some of the stuff that was coming out of the focus groups was absolutely vile. It was racist, it was sexist, it was homophobic, it was transphobic. And I'm sitting there, people going, oh, it's really grim reading, but Labour must listen to these. And I'm thinking, we can listen to them, but we need to sit there and go, well, no, we don't, we don't agree with that. And here are the reasons why immigration is great. Here are the reasons why we need a green new deal. Here are the reasons why promoting um sexuality and genders in all di- all different formats and really a positive message and not just sit there and that so I think making sure that we are in those communities and defending the communities that really kept us kept us alive in t- as you correctly said this could get worse and that's a really mm. scary thought
3: mm. Well, it probably will get worse, yeah. there you go. <laughs> it's like, I mean, what else do you expect? Um, I mean, let, let, let's see where we end up at least. But the, the, no, I think you're right in that. And it's also, look, you can put it in electoral terms if you want. What is the coalition that wins? Labour? anything approaching a majority next time round, you are not going to get there if you spent the four or five years sort of bending yourself around a, an imagined vote or a set of people that exist in some parts of the country because you think, OK, well, now we have to be a little bit, you know, less anti-racism. Well. It's back to controls and immigration mugs and all the rest of it. If we do that, there will be a load of people who don't vote for us and they'll go somewhere else so they won't vote at all. That is the bind that we're in. But also, if you think through what those red wall seats are like, like, like lots and lots of other places, there are young voters then. There is a sort of long term demographic argument that lots of young voters move out to some of these places, right? So they're becoming kind of older, and there's a correlation in 2019 between increasingly aged parts of the country and increasing swings to, to the Conservatives, and there's all sorts of things going on there. I don't think it's a, a function of age directly. But there is a coalition that we have to build in all of these constituencies, and that starts from the people who are voting for us, and we build outwards. We don't sort of try and park people and then say, oh, we'll, we'll go and find some others and hope for the best. It's like you build from where you're strong. You don't build from where you're weak, obviously. And it was strong at the minute. Our new heartlands are major cities, the larger towns. That's where we can build from. And if we can start from that and think about the politics that then reaches people across the rest of the country and how we get there, then maybe we're in with a shout. If it's just, well, you know, we've got to go and listen and look a bit less like I, I don't know what... When people say this, I, I can of a quite understand where they're trying to get to with some of the, these things you know what, what do you actually want to say is it just controls and immigration mugs or what you know it, it's then potentially we can start to to assemble a coalition that, that wins next time round. but i don't think there's any other route other than through exactly as you say starting where you're strong and trying to win arguments rather than just sort of ducking them or conceding them
2: i think a really good example that we should all be looking at on the left is bernie sanders in the primaries they're really Impacting um, image of the meat packers in Iowa, who are all um, I think Latino. I might be wrong on that. I can't quite remember. But a really inspiring image of people that don't necessarily fit what people think as the American way, all sitting there voting for Sanders. And if we can connect that coalition again, like Sanders, and and we follow not exactly because there is obviously a lot of differences in politics, but kind of learn from that and learn from what he's saying and how he's building that coalition. I think we can do something it's not necessarily going to be the worst thing ever. It's just it can be a good starting point of how we can sit right, where do we go from here? And here's a good place to learn.
1: I think the flip side of that is that, obviously, we've had a bit of a sort of small run of what um, Sanders versus Trump might look like. And Sanders is, I think, a stronger media performer than Corbyn, for instance, and they're doing incredible work. But I think they could be vulnerable to some of the same kinds of attacks over here. Um, we know that right-wing movements are kind of learning from each other overseas. Uh, they're talking with each other. So trying to pass on as many of the lessons from the UK to the kind of Sanders team, I think, super important. It's I, I think going back to the, the migration issue, I think it's interesting how kind of uh, Brexit has become a bit of a proxy issue for migration, um, cultural issues. And I think it's interesting this debate around progressive patriotism that's come up. For me, I find it immensely ironic that uh, Boris has sort of fashioned himself as this kind of Churchill figure in the same way that Trump has harked back to this kind of idealised 1950s America. I think Boris harks back to idealised kind of World War II, World War spirit, he models himself on Churchill. And I do wonder whether there's a route for the left in kind of reclaiming that space through actually saying that persecution of minorities was what we were fighting in World War II. And that's exactly what people like Trump and Boris embody. And linking that to climate change as we face more and more migration from climate breakdown. That's only going to fuel a further descent into this narrow-minded nationalism, keep migrants out, protect your own in an increasingly chaotic Field, So if you can present yourself as, you know, this is going back to a a proud British tradition of opposing fascism, embracing minorities and social inclusion, and the way to do that is to kind of come together and tackle climate change to stop that situation worsening, I think that could be a really interesting kind of narrative to knit things together. Fantastic. I mean,
0: we could continue talking about this all day, but sadly it is six and we're going to get kicked out. So um, I want to thank you all again for a really interesting discussion, actually. And so hopefully there's a lot there for everyone to take away and then get active and get out there again. The final reminder to listeners, they can get an exclusive 50% off on a number of books published by Pluto that relate to today's discussion. That's all via Pluto's website, which is www.plutobooks.com forward slash podcast reading. You can use the coupon code podcast at the checkout to get that discount. And if you've enjoyed this conversation, then do leave us a review and tell your friends, family and colleagues. Share the link with them to the show and you can subscribe via your platform of choice. We'll be back again next month with another episode of Radicals in Conversation. So until then, thanks for listening and goodbye.